There was a time when I thought that I would spend the rest of my life at Gombe with the chimpanzees out in the rainforest, and they were the best days of my whole life. Then in 1986, there was this conference in Chicago, and the idea behind this conference was to see whether chimpanzee behavior differed in different environments. At that conference, there was a session on conservation. Shocking, seeing videos and stills of right across Africa, forests disappearing, chimpanzee numbers dropping. And I stayed awake for nights afterwards because there were pictures of our closest living relatives, intensely social, highly intelligent, who can live for 60 years in medical research labs in five foot by five foot cages. And I left as an advocate. I had absolutely no idea what to do, but I knew I had to do something to try and make a difference. So that's when it all began in 1986. I dreamed of seeing a greener and happier planet. I want people to care more about climate change because it affects us all. Wisdom and the lessons we learn. I aspire to change the world too because of the hope she the gave me. She devoted her life together. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. On today's episode, I'm spending time with a man who's a perfect example of a CEO who understands the need to use his own and his company's resources to help heal the world. Dan Springer, CEO of DocuSign. This company has saved billions of sheets of paper, and that has saved the equivalent of a couple of million trees. Dan encourages his staff to volunteer in various ways to make this a better world. And he's a generous donor to JGI, as well as supporting many other worthy causes. We'll be talking further about all of this and the factors that shaped his philanthropy. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Dan Springer. Dan Springer, I really am very excited to welcome you to this episode of the Hopecast. And we haven't known each other that long, but I feel I know you pretty well. I was just trying to think, you know, when I was preparing for this conversation with you, when did we first meet in person? Do you remember? I do. The first time we actually met in person was actually at Davos, at the World Economic Forum. And I always tell everyone, uh, if you want to go to Davos, go with Jane Goodall because you will meet everyone there because they want to come up and introduce themselves to Jane. So that was my uh, introduction to, to meeting the world by having you uh, by my side. How did you first get interested in forests? Because you're doing such amazing things to help restore and protect forests now. So what was it that started this off for you? Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, there's a life you know, piece to that, which is, has always been an, you know, an interest of mine. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, important aspect uh, of the Pacific Northwest, of course, uh, are the forests and some of the, the most beautiful ones, uh, in the world. But I think I really got focused on forests, particularly from a conservation standpoint when I joined DocuSign. Uh, and one of the things that was really clear to me is the place was a special company and our employees were really focused on our impact in our communities broadly defined communities. And one of them is 
course, the global community. And it seemed to me just such an obvious thing where we should really apply ourselves because our core product uh, saves people using paper and therefore you know, saves people from having to cut down trees. So that was sort of the genesis of what became DocuSign for Forests was an opportunity to get our employees engaged in having a positive impact in our broadly defined community. Well, somebody said to me the other day, I was talking about DocuSign, and somebody said to me, yes, but these uh, big tech companies doing something like DocuSign uses a huge amount of energy. How do you answer them? Here's how we're thinking about it right now. So we will be carbon neutral by 2022, but this is one of the dirty little secrets about businesses talking about uh, carbon neutrality is a lot of times the bulk of it is done by buying offsets. And why I don't think there's a way that DocuSign can get to ever zero you know, production of carbon. We're always going to have people doing some amount of travel. We're going to have offices that are going to need you know, some electrical uh, you know, components. And even if you say, well, we move to get all of our resources to be the most sustainable, we're also just forcing other people, if we're taking all the sustainable you know, generations, we're supporting someone else you know, to, a, to a, you know, an oil-based or a carbon-based you know, electrical production. So I do think that you, you don't want to um, lie to yourself. You know, and say that we're perfect, but we do want to get to that carbon neutrality, which will require some small amount of offsets for us. We want to focus it on reducing you know, our consumption. Um, interestingly, when you, we do our quick analysis of our consumption, our data centers are actually a tiny portion of it. We're, we're not like some of the tech companies that have really complex data center um, sort of uh, production volumes. Ours are actually very straightforward. So it's, a, it's small. It's, it's a third or fourth uh, item for us. The big things for us is we have offices. And people have to get to those offices. So it's the transportation to the offices and then the power to run the offices. And then we have travel and we have, uh, you know, people that pre-pandemic uh, used to fly around uh, to go see customers. And while that's a valuable thing to do, one thing the pandemic has taught us is we could do um, a lot less of that. And so those are the kinds of areas where we really see some our big buckets. And we're going to focus on those. Now, the pandemic, if there is a silver lining, and there aren't many, has dramatically reduced uh, our consumption. So we're not in our offices and we're not uh, traveling around. So, so we have seen some reductions. Post-pandemic, um, we really are putting a major focus on where we can change things for the better. We're calling going back to better and can be even more efficient. And then we will buy offsets for that last component that we can't eliminate. But I think it's really critical that companies do that and own up to both getting to a neutral number, but also being honest about what component of that is really buying offsets which is not the same as reducing the consumption in the first place. Don't you agree that the more we collaborate with different like-minded companies, NGOs, et cetera, is what's really going to save the planet? I absolutely do. And, you know, I think one of the challenges is there's a construct of people finally, particularly in the United States, I think accepting this reality. Um, there's so many communities that depend on forests for their livelihood. I think that sometimes is missed because these are folks that don't really have a seat at the table, particularly in some of the third world countries where you've spent you know, a great deal of time. And so I actually think this awakening that we've had is critical. And now the challenge is getting people to accept that knowledge and intent is great, but action is what we really need. And so I think the best thing we can do is build governments and institutions there that are strong. One of the powerful things uh, that we started to do recently Adakusan is actually to send teams pre-pandemic. They're sending teams to uh, Central America of our employees who really wanted to play a bigger part in doing institutional building for nonprofits there that are trying to protect 
there for us. Now we're doing them remotely. We just did our first year where we had a remote program because we couldn't send people there. And I think that concept of all of us taking a little bit of responsibility to support those organizations, that their hearts are in the right places, but they don't have some of the skills that businesses have to build those organizations. And that is something I think that we can all do more of. So you're basically saying that your company wants to help companies in Latin America, but these would be companies run by local people so that it comes from within the country and not imposed from outside. That's the goal. The goal is to try to not, and these are oftentimes nonprofits that we're, we're helping you know, build their organization skills. But the concept is to say, we want to help you do what you do better, as opposed to we want to tell you what to do in your backyard. Yep. So when we began our program, we selected a tiny group. I think there were seven local Tanzanians, and they went into the villages, not us, and asked them, what do you think we can do to make your lives better? And we followed their requests. So gradually they came to trust us. And that program is now in 104 villages throughout the Chimp Range in Tanzania. They've become our partners in conservation. And that program is in six other African countries. It's their land. It's their future. They're the people who matter. And you have the same concept, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's fantastic because it actually sort of reminds me very much of your Roots and Shoots program. If you think about the magic of uh, a quote you used once that I loved was, was uh, think locally and act locally. <laughs> and that concept of getting people to think about what they're doing really in their own community. And if we can spread that and have everyone who they most likely to care most deeply about the area closest to home, and if we can spread that through programs that, that really drive that sort of entrepreneurial spirit uh, with that, that heart, I think it's fantastic. So I think and this is uh, the 30th year celebration right now. I think it's a great model uh, for programs. They're difficult. They need leadership. But getting that thousand flowers blooming all over the place, uh, I think is a fantastic way to carry on your legacy. As I'm sure you know, we began Roots and Shoots with 12 high school students in Tanzania who are concerned about not just environmental problems, but also social problems. And from that little tiny beginning with 12 students, we're now in around 60 countries around the world with members, kindergarten, university, everything in between. And you are taking it to one new level by involving your staff, because we all need to be involved. The main message is every single individual makes an impact on the planet every single day. And because everything is interconnected, which I learned in the rainforest, the Roots and Shoots groups choose projects to make the world better for people, for animals, for the environment, because it's all interrelated. And I think it's because they get to choose that it's taken off the way it has. How is it working in your company? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, obviously, I agree with you, but it would be a shame not to mention to your listeners how DocuSign chose to enter the Roots and Shoots program, which was uh, you know, several months ago when I was interviewing you for a DocuSign for Forest initiative, and you used your amazing persuasion skills to shame me into uh, 
<laughs> to shame me into having a roots and shoots program in our company. And I think the logic to use is first, you said, don't you think companies should do this? And I said, yeah, I think they should. And you said, well, don't you think you should get started? And I, my little head went down. <laughs> I said, I guess I just signed up. And what we're trying to do is that same model, getting a lot of individual people motivated. Uh, I'm going to be working on a program where we're doing local plantings. You have to be within a mile of your home, is sort of the, the initiative we set. And as you know, you've been to my home. I live in downtown San Francisco. So it's not easy to find spots where you can plant. But the other thing that you pushed me to do, which I think was really important, you said make sure we get people so that they're engaging their children uh, in the programs. As an example, one of our employees actually went with her two young girls to a small uh, school in San Francisco and said, let's launch a Roots and Shoots that sort of came out of that effort from DocuSign. So it's kind of a full cycle to your point. We're now going back into schools that are discovering you and discovering your work. Uh, and they're going to be building birdhouses um, and planting native species. And, you know, the fact that that is kind of gone full circle back into the students of the employees, you know, coming around, that just makes me feel really powerful that there's, there's this kind of opportunity we can see that flywheel, you know, continue to spin and spread the word. Dan, I take issue with you on one thing you said. You said I shamed you. <laughs> I wasn't shaming you. I was giving I was giving you an opportunity to feel really good about yourself. <laughs> that's exactly the right way to think about it. <laughs> and that's in the future how I will. And so how do you think involving your employees in Rootsitude. How do you think that's made a difference? Has it? I think it has. Well, there's two things. We really clear. I talked before about DocuSign Impact and our core mission is to get uh, our employees excited about you know, contributing to their community. But the benefit we get from that is they feel more excited about working at a company that cares about getting them you know, motivated in the community. And so our employees that do these programs where we're sending them to Central America or we're sending them you know, down the street uh, to plant a tree, um, they feel better about DocuSign. And we clearly see it's a part of what drives our great culture. And when you see these, you know, DocuSign Glassdoor scores where people rate their companies and we're in the top 15, 20 companies, you know, out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands, even now millions are on Glassdoor. And we, the reason we end up in that top uh, tier all the time is because people say they're really proud about the kind of company we are. And the other thing that I think is really powerful that you people might miss, we've actually worked with our customers. So we were planting trees with our Unilever customers in London just before the pandemic. And as I watched the folks and we were out there in the fields and we we're planting these trees, we had a connection with those customers. They're not leaving DocuSign. This is a special place. So whether it's Walmart or Shell, a lot of the different companies that have said to us, can we connect with you on these environmental initiatives? Because it makes us feel better you know, about the relationship with the core supplier is also another powerful benefit. So there's a lot of, you know, sort of, I would say selfish or, you know, company benefits we get because we're leveraging something really powerful, which is just, as you said to me, we're inspiring people to feel good about themselves and giving them an opportunity to feel proud about what they're doing. And that it definitely yields a lot of different positive, you know, externalities that, that come from it. So we're quite pleased. You're saying that your employees feel really good about planting trees or whatever it is they're doing to volunteer. And that makes you feel good. So basically, I think that the change that's happening is that more and more of your customers and other customers of other companies are beginning to understand that the planet's in a mess and that we need to do something. What's happening now is businesses are acting and voting with their feet. 
the same way some enlightened consumers have. So they're saying my supply chain needs to get on board with these same values. And so we do think that we will become a better supplier and a more attractive supplier to our customers if they see the positive environmental impact we're going to make. Of course, with DocuSign, again, it's such an obvious component of thinking about helping people not use paper, not ship things in FedEx packages around the world if they don't need to and do it you know, with, with our digital tools. So people already start off feeling positive about us. And then when they see that we're actually not just running our business, which is sort of a carbon positive business, right? We're, we're taking carbon out by having people not use paper and not cut down trees. Then on top of that, our employees are engaging in these initiatives. That makes them even more excited about working with us. And I think the fact that we now have a new set of tools that we're realizing can work in ways we didn't realize. As an example, we had a lot of employees that we said had to come to the office every day. And if they asked why, we said that's just the nature of this job. And when we couldn't have anyone come to the office, guess what we learned? Some of those jobs could be just as successful not coming to the office every day. So when we come, we call again, back to better, we're going to have a lot of jobs that we say they never need to come to the office. And some maybe only need to come a couple of days you know, a week. And if you think about that, if you move someone from commuting into the office from five days a week to two days a week, you say 60% you know, of that commute component of the, of the carbon creation. So I think we have to find those opportunities. I was in Australia once and I met with your team down there in Australia and they were a lovely group. And they talked about how when you came to Australia, it opened up amazing opportunities for them for engagement, for fundraising, for all sorts of activities that were super powerful. And you motivated a lot of people. But the other big thing that I think we have to realize, it's the, the other things that happen on top of our own travel. And so as an example, I actually think there's going to be opportunities for me to travel more and actually reduce the total travel. By that, I mean, we had events at DocuSign where we bring people from all over the world to San Francisco. So if there were three people in San Francisco that they came to talk to, what if we just had those three people and I was one of them go to those places? And so instead of having thousands of people come here to be in a big auditorium, which is exciting and there's, there's benefits to getting that big tent, you know, event, but it's a huge cost from a, you know, environmental impact standpoint. So what about I get a little less lazy and I go see them in Europe or where, you know, wherever they're coming from. So we're going to look for opportunities to do that. So we may have some people that we actually need to move around even more in order to prevent lots and lots of people, uh, from, from, from moving around. So we'll, we'll have to get creative, but I think the right answer is not to, to be too draconian in the reaction the other way, but to use our to use our really good, thoughtful, you know, cognitive skills to figure out what's the optimal way we can uh, manage those interactions. How did you get to be who you are? Well, I mean, I am uh, hugely uh, a product of my mom. I grew up, you know, with a single parent household. Uh, and I grew up with, uh, you know, so I was joking, my mom and my dog. But there are two things that inspired me. One is I wanted to be successful. But I also grew up knowing that it was really important that I could have, you know, that pride you were just talking about earlier, I could feel good about the choices that I made. And not that I haven't made so many mistakes and so many things, you know, that I wish I'd never done, you know, and you have to learn you know, through our mistakes. But I think that foundation that my mother gave me that said, she trusted me. She didn't lecture me about what to do. She just said, you'll know what to do. Trust your instincts, trust yourself, be disciplined and, and hard on yourself. But that thing is a foundational uh, piece that I think uh, drove most of, of, 
you know, the good and maybe not, not so good about me, but, but definitely drove uh, the good aspects uh, was that foundation for my mom. So you and I were both blessed with a supportive mother. Yes, we were. It makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, after 60 years of research with the chimpanzees of Gombe, we can look back and we see the offspring of the supportive mothers. That's a very important role to stress. Uh, Having gone through the process of becoming a single parent myself and and full-time raising my own sons, I think men can be those moms too. And I think that as a society, we need to demand that. We need to demand that the, the men and the judge could do that too. They have to be, they have to be the moms too. Definitely, it can be a man. And in chimp society too, we get males adopting orphans and saving their lives right. and behaving just like mothers. Right. So growing up, not having sort of a lot of siblings around, I did have some cousins, but they were a bit younger. Yeah, my dog was my companion. She was a constant and also learned so much in, you know, having... You take care of a dog, but a dog takes care of you, um, you know, uh, in ways you probably don't even understand as a youth. You maybe don't understand as much. Um, I actually have a, a funny but somewhat embarrassing story. I um, I spoke at my college graduation. I went to a tiny little school, so it wasn't a big deal. But I, I was the student speaker, and my dog uh, had died about uh, just a couple months before I graduated from college. And I talked about losing one of my best friends. I didn't mention that it was my dog. I just, I was a much more high level uh, speech because we were all about leaving school. And I said, we're about to leave these people that we love and care for, but now we're going out in the world and I just lost this friend. I said, one of the things I think we can do is by honoring those you know, important friends, including our pets, um, by thinking about the best characteristics they have and trying to emulate that in our lives. Evidently it touched a chord for some people. And a lot of people came up afterwards and asked me about it. And then years went by and people would come up and ask me about this friend and, a couple of times I might have mentioned that, well, that was actually my childhood dog. And some people were horribly upset with me and offended. And they said, I cried when you told that story and it was your dog. But it was a funny phenomenon for me to see some people that just couldn't see that they didn't understand you could have that type of a relationship. Well, I mean, you know, we're not the only beings on the planet with personalities, minds and emotions. Yeah. And dogs are extraordinary. And They've got this, you know, man's best friend. They are. Yeah. They're men and women's best friend because they're loyal. They, it's an unconditional love and unconditional loyalty. Dan, how do you feel about the future? Hopeful? Depressed? Well, you know, I, I'm by my nature, I'm a very optimistic person. This has been a trying year, right? Uh, it's been a trying year in, in many ways, and particularly in the United States, you know, the sort of awakening uh, we've had. Uh, about some of the, you know, the injustice, you know, in, in our society, uh, in multiple levels. I mean, if you think about what we went through, really starting about a year ago, much more aggressive understanding of Black Lives Matter movement, and then, but even we're we're facing in the last couple of months this massive, you know, increase in phenomena around Asian hate crimes. You have to ask yourself, what was underlying such that someone could incite that? Um, on the justice side, there's a famous MLK quote about in history. The long arc of history bends towards justice. Don't you think this is almost certainly because of certain political leaders talking about this pandemic and its causes? I think the hardest thing in the last you know, several years in the United States has not been seeing an individual or a small number of individuals saying offensive things, it's seeing the receptivity that they've had to those messages. 
So I think for us to say it's all about, um, you know, one individual who, again, made some offensive comments, no, no question. But it, I think we have to own up to the fact that there are other challenges. And I think for our broader sort of social issues that we're struggling with, I think there's an underlying piece that, that people like me have had trouble admitting, which is that income inequality and the dramatic acceleration of our income inequality is creating a phenomenon where we're in a society, but we're not understanding what's happening to the other people in our society. And we get into these echo chambers, you know, where you're just around too many people like yourself. Um, and the danger of that is you're just missing what's happening, you know, for the majority of the people. We have to figure out a way to address uh, income inequality. And for people who say, I've got plenty of resources, I can have a positive environment. I can buy a home in the country. I can have trees. I can have all those things. It's not my problem that other people don't have those resources. I'm unabashedly a capitalist. I'm very comfortable in the capitalism is a better macroeconomic form than any of the others. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of problems. And so so while I'm supportive of maintaining a capitalistic framework, uh, how do we work around it to, to make it work for everyone? I think that's the kind of challenges, as you said, we have to acknowledge that people have their human needs and their human desires, and they're going to have to take care of their families and do those things. How do we create an environment where they can do that um, in a way that's not so damaging to their own environment as well as our global uh, well, I always say we must acknowledge that we need money to live, right? We all need some money to live. Where it goes wrong is when you live for money for its own sake, for wealth and power. And if you are in a capitalistic framework, as you are, and you're making money, but you're making money to make the world a better place. And that's what I always say when I'm talking to a big audience. I always say, you know, it's fine if you're making money to uh, help make the world a better place. For example, giving money to the Jane Goodall Institute, that makes everybody <laughs> laugh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, give away the money you're making uh, if you're concerned about income inequality. Don't stop making money. It's actually keep making money. Keep building great businesses that do wonderful things. Do all of those wonderful things in a responsible way. Um, actually do more of it so that you can fund the important initiatives that we have. And so there's no there's no shame in making money. Just use it wisely. Uh, and if you do that, then you can feel uh, you can feel good about it. Yep. And that's why if we care about the future of the planet and saving the forests and the oceans and equitable wages, we have to make money to enable these things to happen. Well, Dan, I'm really grateful that you came and joined this Hopecast and. I think everybody who listens will come away with a slightly different perspective about what the tech companies can do and what they should do and what they can do as individuals to make this world a better place. So thank you for joining us and giving up your valuable time. And I hope that next time we can meet in person and hug each other mm. without a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. And just say this is uh, always one of my highlights. I get an opportunity to spend time with you. Uh, you are you know, truly a treasure. You're a global treasure. And the fact that I've gotten to know you, it, it really is one of the highlights of my life. So thank you so much for the friendship. And I look forward to those future opportunities where we get to meet in person. We hear, think globally, act locally. Don't. 
If you think globally, you become filled with gloom. But if you take a little piece of this whole picture, my piece, our piece, this is what I can do here. I'm making a difference. And hi, wow, they're making a difference over there. And so are they, and so are they. And so gradually the pieces get filled in and the world is a better place because of you. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Inar Gaukusha is our producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. <laughs>